Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad again that you could join us as we continue our study through God's Word together. Today we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that's Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, and the 8th chapter. If you're joining us for the first time and you haven't been part of this study as we uh, seek to grasp hold of what Scripture has to say and how it applies to our lives, then I encourage you to back up, start at the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. It'll give you some background on this particular letter and on the historical setting and the environment into which Paul is giving um, these words. So it'll be helpful for you. But if you've been part of the study with us up to this point, then I, I welcome you back and let's continue to move forward. Um, it's not a long chapter today, but it's a chapter that carries a lot of significant weight, I think, in how we live and the choices that we make living out our faith in Christ and the freedoms that we find there. So I thank you for joining me as we continue this journey together. Now let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we dig into his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many blessings that you have given us, the greatest of which is forgiveness and right relationship with you found in Jesus the Christ. Lord, thank you for providing that way of salvation for us. And now as we live out that freedom that we have in Christ, Father, help us to do it in a way that is surrendered to you. Lord, that in our freedom, we would still glorify you and share your love and the message of your gospel with others around us that need to hear it. Lord, help us to make our lives about you, not us. And speak to us today through your word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we pick up in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is again continuing to respond to questions that were sent to him. Now, of course, he started 1 Corinthians with dealing with some other issues that he knew about in the church at Corinth, and now he's gotten down to the the core of responding to the letter that they had sent him. And as in the seventh chapter, we saw him dealing with other issues uh, going on in the church really uh, five through seven. Now, as we get to chapter eight, he's approaching the idea of food sacrifice to idols. Apparently that was a question that was posed. You know, what, what about some, some of our church folks, they're eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. Now understand in the first century Greco-Roman world and Corinth was in Greece, um, the local butcher stalls in the market would have been um, supplied with meat. I mean, they would have sacrificed those cattle or whatever um, in such a way that they did it as an offering to one of their pagan gods and then put the meat for sale or the part of the meat that wasn't um, consumed in the offering, if you will. They would have made that for sale. So it was unless you did it yourself, you were pretty much stuck eating meat sacrificed to idols. But uh, there was more to it than that. But that's 
the core of it. And so the question was, okay, if I'm a believer in Christ and I'm following Christ with my life, can I still buy that cut of meat from over there? Because that meat was sacrificed to an idol. And if I partake in the eating of that meat, then am I partaking in the worship of that idol, that God, if you will, little g. Um, so that was the question that the Corinthian church faced, and they wanted clarity from Paul. And Paul gives them that here in these 13 verses that make up the eighth chapter. Let's look at what it says. He starts out by saying this. Now, regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know let me try that again. Yes, his response. Yes, we know that we all have knowledge. Now that's a quote. We all have knowledge. In fact, the way Paul uses that, that seems to have been a quote that some of the Christians in the church at Corinth used to, um, well, here again, set themselves above others in the church. We all have knowledge, you know, kind of a, I have spiritual knowledge, so I don't really need you to tell me anything, you know, sort of an approach. So now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Now, I find it interesting, although not really surprising, given the rest of what Paul has had to say leading up to this point about knowledge and what the world views as wisdom versus what God views. Right here, he makes it real clear. It doesn't matter about how much you know. It matters about how much you love. But while knowledge makes us feel important, now feel important, doesn't make us important, but it may make us feel important. It is love that strengthens the church. So, and he's going to clarify this in future chapters, but which is the which one of the two should you strive for, knowledge or love? Well, if, if you're limited to only one, go for love because it strengthens the church. Knowledge has a way of puffing up, making you feel important. It's not what it's about. He keeps going. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Ouch. Wow, that hurts. There's a memory verse for you. What's your favorite verse? Oh, 1 Corinthians 8, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 2. Yeah, I don't think so. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. Paul's giving that to the church at Corinth as a stern warning because they were enamored with their own knowledge. Uh, we've already seen that in some of the other discussions that he's had with them so far. That, uh, oh, we know this one. We've got this all figured out. Folks, nobody has it all figured out. Nobody knows everything there is to know. Now, I'm speaking humanly, of course, God knows. But we don't. So how do we negotiate those areas where we don't know? Well, we negotiate them in obedience to Christ and acting out of love. You do that, you're going to be all right. Uh, it's back to Jesus saying, you know, greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
and the second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two, all the law and the prophets hang. In other words, if you can get that right, if you can love God with everything you are and everything you've got, and you can love your neighbor, then the rest of it's going to fall into place. You may not know everything there is to know. You may not know all the answers, so to speak, but you will get it right when you love God with everything you are and everything you have, and you love your neighbor. So let's keep going. We've made it to the third verse. Um, But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. Wow. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. See, it's not our knowledge. It's not our intellect. It's not our ability to have all the answers. I've known so many people over the years that are like, I can't talk to other people about Jesus because they'll ask questions I don't have the answers to. You know, we always have the answer. And and no, if you're thinking, yeah, the answer is Jesus. There's going to be questions that come to us we don't know the answer to, but you know what the right answer is? I don't know. I don't know. But I know Christ. And I trust him. Even in the stuff I don't know and don't understand, I trust him. See, it does always go back to Christ. It goes back to our love for God. And it is the person who loves God. That's the one whom God recognizes. It makes all the difference. Our knowledge will not save us. But our love for God, our faith in him, that makes all the difference. Now, continuing on in verse four, he says, so what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? So back to the original question, what about the meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a God and that there is only one God. Wow. That's pretty significant. Now, realize that part of the purpose of the nation of Israel uh, being called into being, God taking them as his chosen people, was to be a royal priesthood, to be uh, missionaries to the world, in essence, um, proclaiming to the world that there is only one God. Not that our God is the greatest of gods. It's our God is the only God. None of the rest of them are real because ours is the God of all creation, the God who through Christ spoke all of it into existence, who made us for relationship with him, who has done everything necessary to redeem us from our sinful state, from our rebellion to him and the price of that rebellion. That God, the God Paul talked about in Athens, on Mars Hill. Yeah, that God is the only real God. Anything else anyone, and I mean anyone, worships other than the God of Scripture is made up. Now, they may be sincere in their worship, but they're sincerely deceived. 
they're not real. There is only one God. And it's not Brother Scott's opinion on it. It's the last few words of verse 4 of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. There is only one God. That's what it says. Again, the whole verse. So what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a God and that there is only one God. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. Now, it's all lowercase. But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything, and we live for Him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. So there's the truth of the matter. That is our reality that we live in. Whether our world acknowledges that reality or not, it is still the truth. There is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, that triune being, God. Everything else is, well, by definition, not God. People have chosen to worship all sorts of stuff, but that doesn't make any of that God. It's not. It's false gods. It's just stuff or just ideas or, but it's not God. It has no power. So Paul's reminding them of where their worship should be, of what is true. Now, it's out of that frame of reference that he's going to answer this question. And he answers it with some grace towards those that don't grasp that truth. And that can be a challenge for us. As I sit here in Texas, in the United States, in 2020, what year is it? 2023. Um, you know, there's there's almost this back of our mind pervasive attitude of, well, you know, if they're too dumb to acknowledge the truth, then, you know, who cares what they think sort of a thing. We as believers are not given the freedom in Christ to treat others that way. We are given freedom in Christ to act in love. Not just love for God, but love for others. Love for others doesn't look at people who are deceived, people who are ignorant of the truth and look down on them, but instead view them as those that have been taken captive by a lie. And in love for them, seek their freedom and seek their salvation. That's what it's about. So I hope that you're on the same page and you understand there is only one God. Everything else isn't God. There aren't many gods. God isn't the greatest of gods. He is the only God. Now, in verse 7, he says, however, 
Not all believers know this. You see, at the church, at the church there in Corinth, there are so many that have come out of pagan backgrounds, and they have acknowledged Christ, and they have sought to follow Christ as their Savior and Lord, and have have sought forgiveness for their sins, but they haven't matured in their faith to the point of understanding that it's not God is the greatest of gods, but instead that he is the only God. And you may say, well, how can they be saved if they don't understand that? Don't they get the basic doctrines of the Christian faith? As I read my New Testament, I don't really see in there where we have to understand all the basic doctrines of the Christian faith to be saved. I read in there that when you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The rest of that, God works out in your life. The rest of that is that sanctification process where you are discipled. Remember, we're called to go and make disciples. Yeah, there's a growing and a learning process there. And some of them at Corinth just hadn't been discipled. They were ignorant. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And so their weak consciences are violated. You know, they don't understand that the gods aren't real. So that piece of beef over there that this morning was sacrificed in honor of Zeus they think when they eat it that they are in some way worshiping Zeus. Now, I'm just making up an example here, but you know that's the way they're thinking is because they haven't matured in their faith and understanding of Christ to the point of understanding Zeus isn't real. So you can't be worshiping another God. There isn't another God. And it's just a piece of meat that God created for your nourishment. Enjoy it. So instead, their consciences are violated. It goes on in verse 8. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it, and we don't gain anything if we do. We don't become more holy or less holy because of what we eat. It's not God says, oh, you're holy unless you eat that. No. Remember that that vision at Simon the Tanner's house? Peter was up on the roof, and, and he had this vision multiple times of God lowering the sheet down with all sorts of unclean animals on it that, according to the Jewish law, were things you couldn't eat because they were unclean. They would make you unholy. And God tells him, eat. And he's like, I can't do that. That's on the don't list, you know. And um, God finally gets it through his head. You know, I made it. I say it's okay. It's okay. Because it's not what you eat that makes you holy or unholy. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. So that's the deal with food sacrificed to idols. That's the deal with that piece of meat. Okay. Now, that's the reality underlying it. Now, Paul's going to give us some application for how we ought to behave in light of that reality. Let's check it out.
Starting in verse 9, he says, but. Uh, always wait for the but with Paul, because it's coming. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. So you've got the knowledge. You understand there's only one God, and that's just meat. Meat is meat. Somebody may think they sacrificed it to some other God, but there aren't any other gods. So it's just a piece of meat, and I'm going to eat it. You may be mature enough in your faith that you understand that, but understand there are those around you that are not that mature in faith. And if they eat that meat, they're going to see it as having worshiped a false God of worshiping some other God other than the Lord. And it's going to be a stumbling problem for their conscience. And so Paul says, you must be careful so that your freedom, your freedom to eat whatever you want, because you know there's only one God, does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Those that say, hey, if I eat this, I'm worshiping another God. I'm betraying my Savior by eating this piece of meat. It doesn't matter that they're incorrect in their basic understanding there. It matters that it damages their conscience. It matters that to them they are sinning against God. And you encouraged it by the exercise of your freedom. Ah, that gets messy, doesn't it? You say, but wait, I have freedom in Christ. I can live my life how I see fit as long as I'm okay with God. And it doesn't matter whatever. I'm not responsible for what other people think. Ah, yeah, to some extent you are. It's called your witness. And Paul is reminding the church at Corinth, they can't just live their freedom for Christ without concern, without love for their fellow believers that they may be causing damage to by the exercise of their freedom. Well, that's not fair that I have to, I have to limit my life because someone else doesn't get it. It's called love where we sacrifice of ourselves for the building up of someone else, kind of like a God that would sacrifice himself in the place of his creation that didn't care about him at the time but which he loved enough to do everything necessary to save. Might I remind you of Paul's words to the church at Rome? God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In light of that, it really starts to ring a little hollow when we fuss about our freedoms in Christ being limited for the sake of others, doesn't it? It should. Well, he goes on in verse 10 and he says, For if others see you with your, quote, superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience? By eating food that has been offered to an idol? In other words, by you exercising your freedom, do you think you could influence them, might be influencing them to do something that they would then have a problem with? 
So verse 11. So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. Yeah. See, it's not just about the other believer. It's about our relationship to Christ. And if we claim to be following Christ, but we do it in a way that is destructive to other believers then we've sinned against Christ. So then verse 13. So, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. You may say, why is Paul going vegan here or what's the deal Paul is saying look it's this important he's saying if what I'm doing when I eat meat is causing another believer to sin if I am sinning against Christ because I am damaging the faith of another believer even though their faith may be immature even though their faith may not be fully informed if the way I am behaving and in, in living my freedom in Christ is damaging to them, is causing them to sin, then that just won't be part of my life anymore. I will never eat meat again as long as I live. So is that important? Why is it that important? Because he says, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. The Christian attitude, the attitude of obedience to Christ is not one of, oh, they just need to get over it. Oh, they just need to become more mature so they don't have a problem with it. The attitude of Christ is, okay, if that in my life is leading you away from Christ instead of towards him, then it doesn't need to be part of my life anymore. Because Paul's making the point to the church at Corinth, it really is that important. It is that big a deal. In no way is he saying that that meat is really a worship of some other god. Because he makes it clear there is no other God. That's all just nonsense and it's just meat. Eat it. But if in your life there are others around you who know Christ, but you're eating that meat will lead them to do something like eating the meat that they don't understand isn't a worship of a false God. And they will understand that they have sinned against God because they have partaken in this worship of another God. So for them it is sin. Don't be responsible for that. Don't be the one who led them into that. Now that plays out in all sorts of areas in your life. And you're going to have to wrestle in prayer and with the conviction of the Holy Spirit for what things in your life as you seek to live for Christ may be getting in the way of those around you. 
I can't give you a list of the things in your life. But the very presence of Christ's Spirit in your life will help you find that list in your own heart. Will open your eyes to it. Will convict you so that you can live in obedience to him and that you can truly be a loving blessing to those brothers and sisters in Christ around you. Don't take an easy out on chapter 8. Don't gloss over it. Don't put it out of your mind and don't think about it. Take the time. It's only 13 verses, but wrestle with it. wrestle with it. I read something the other day that pointed out that uh, when we have spent time wrestling with God and his word, then like Jacob, we tend to walk away with a limp. Um, We need more limping believers. I need more limping in my life. And I hope that prayerfully looking at these verses and asking the questions about your own life, looking at the lives of other believers around you, that you walk away with a limp too. For the sake of the kingdom. So that we can live the love of Christ to those around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you. Thank you for your word, that you speak to us through it. Thank you for creating us and loving us, calling us to relationship with you and to those around us, that we can show your love to everyone, brother and sister and stranger alike. Lord, continue to speak to our hearts. Convict us by your Spirit. Call us ever forward in obedience to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.